Well, welcome. Thank you so much as well, Paul, for leading us. If you don't know who I am, if you're new to the church in the building or online, my name is Mike and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege today to just open the word of God. But before we do that, I'd love to pray. Is that okay? So let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being able to worship together, to come into community, to sit under your words, to join together in worship, Lord. We pray for this meeting today for our songs, for the lyrics we're singing over ourselves and to you, and for the word that we're about to speak and delve into, Lord, that it would all be to glorify you. We pray that everything that is going to be said, God, would glorify you. Anything that doesn't, we pray is forgotten in a moment. And we pray that this word today, Lord Jesus, finds good soil. Bless us, God. Give us grace and mercy and peace. And Lord, just help us understand the privilege, firstly, of who you are, and secondly, who we are in you. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, it's my privilege to bring the word to you today. If you were here last week, we kicked off this brand new identity campaign. We're going right back to basics, right back to the foundations. And it's oftentimes, especially if you've been in church a long time, some of the foundational fundamental truths of who we are in Jesus and indeed our faith, our Christian walk, we let go by the wayside. We get bogged down in complex theologies and complex language, but actually the foundational things are the most important things things and it's often oftentimes the foundational things are the most simple things and what we are taking some time to do as a church is to revisit some of these foundational truths these simple truths but I believe church to the core of my being that if we get this and we understand this it will change our life forever You know, Jesus' message of the gospel wasn't just believe in me and when you die, you'll go to heaven. Jesus' primary message of the gospel, you see time and time again in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he said this, the kingdom of God is here now. It is now at hand. When Jesus talks about giving us life and life abundantly in John 10.10, he's not talking about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. He's talking about living that life, that abundant life, that fulfilled life, that life full of grace, mercy, peace and truth right now. And I want to look today at what it means to live in the kingdom of God. As Paul said last week, we looked at our family identity, who we are as adopted sons and daughters and therefore heirs in the kingdom. This week, if you're a note taker, my title is simply this, citizen, citizen. And I'm going to be diving back into the letter to the Ephesians where we left off last week and jump just one chapter. But before we do that, as I said, we want to lay some really foundational key truths and I want to take you back in time on a journey. And to do that, I think in my mind, I'm a bit of a a, a sci-fi geek. I was born in 1989, but my favourite films are all from the 80s and the early 90s. I want to take you back in the DeLorean. Anyone know about the DeLorean? Back to the Future. Now, I'm not going to try and force us all into a two-seat, a supercar, as cool as that would be. What we're going to do, we're going to go in our theological DeLorean and we're going to go right back through the pages of Scripture, rifle backwards from Ephesians, back through the Old Testament, all the way to day dot, literally the beginning, Genesis 1. And it would probably be helpful if I could just have the time to read you the whole three chapters, but I'm not going to do that before you panic. We've only got about half an hour together. So let me summarise. Genesis opens with this amazing narrative, this poetry, this poem about creation. And what we see primarily in Genesis 1 is that the author, the writer, who we think is Moses, wants to communicate a key truth to us. And that key truth is that God is all-powerful, he is all-sovereign, he is the creator. He created everything, he spoke and galaxies came into being. He breathed out and planets hung in space. 
And then he created the earth. And I love the language it used. He formed the earth. You can imagine God as artists forming the valleys and the hills and the seas. But he didn't stop there. He started to populate the hills with plants. And then he populated with herds and with animals. And he looked at the deepest oceans and he created all sorts of crazy fish and sea animals, some of which we're still discovering today. But then we get to Genesis 2, at the end of Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, and God creates his crowning part of creation. In his works, he created you and I. Or more specifically, our ancestors. We know them as Adam and Eve. And what is different about Adam and Eve is God didn't just speak them into being, he formed them and then he breathed into them. And what he did in that moment, he imparted something of himself in us. Theologians, those who study faith and God, call it the Imago Dei. That's I-M-A-G-O-D-E-I. And what it simply means is the image of God. Do you know, church, that each and every one of you, whether you will claim affinity to Jesus and the Christian faith, each and every one of you have something of the Creator in you. You are made beautifully, fearfully, the Bible tells us, even with all your weird quirks and dress senses, in the image of God. And God breathed his life into Adam and Eve and he didn't just breathe his life into Adam and Eve. The very first thing he did to them when we get to Genesis 1 verse 28 is this. Look, he blessed them. He breathed into them, he woke them up, he created Adam, then he created Eve and then he blessed them. But he didn't just want them to dawdle around eating fruit in the Garden of Eden and skinny dipping, okay? What he wanted them to do was give them a commission. We hear a lot in church about the Great Commission, but we don't talk often about the First Commission, which is still just as important. He said this. He said, Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and increase in number. Some translations say, and multiply. That basically means have lots of children. Who said that being a Christian wasn't fun? Maybe some of you don't know how children are made, or we'll leave that to your parents to tell you. But then he said, go and fill the earth. And then look at this. We don't talk about this often. And subdue it and rule over it. Every living thing. Well, this causes us to stop and wonder, what do they need to subdue? God has just created something. Well, what we find if we go to the book of Job, that as God is laying the foundations of the earth, the hills, the valleys, the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the streams, it says that the sons of God, that's the angels, the spiritual realm, were singing over it. They were awed as God created And somewhere between Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, there must have been some sort of kingdom rebellion because half or a third of the angelic host decided to disobey God. And when we talk about Satan and demons, we touched on it a little bit and we don't want to touch on it too much to glorify it. But we often think of Satan's domain being in hell. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture says that God cast Satan down to where? The earth, the world. So we see Eden, and I remember being in Sunday school and thinking that the whole earth was Eden. But what we see in this verse here in Genesis 1.28, that Eden was a specific place, and it had boundaries. And God's intention was that Adam and Eve would go forth and multiply, but not just stop in the gates of Eden. You see, their commission was to be the first colony on, on earth and bring in citizen rule from heaven to earth. Adam and Eve were the very first citizens of kingdom culture on earth. And their commission was to not just, you know, lays about, as I said, skinny dipping in Eden, eating fruit and getting fat. Their commission was to subdue the earth. They were meant to push the boundaries of Eden outwards because there was another kingdom. This is a tale of two kingdoms, not one. There was a kingdom of God on earth, but there was also another kingdom. Now, this kingdom was led, as I said, by Satan. And Satan isn't a name, it's a title. Satan means adversary. 
And there was this adversary against the kingdom of God, this rebellion. And this kingdom, as we said, their native language last week, John 8, the native language of Satan and his hordes and his minions is lies. And there was a hostile takeover in the kingdom of God. There was a slipping under the fence into the gate where one of the enemy got in and saw Adam and Eve and he began to lie and tell mistruths. You see, what Satan does, he does an outright lie because we can often tell an outright lie to our face. He takes a bit of the truth and he distorts it and he misapplies it and he changes it. And what happens as Satan goes into Adam and Eve, he tricks them, he deceives them. And Adam and Eve willingly give up their citizenship to the kingdom of heaven for the kingdom of the world. Look at this, Genesis 3. And so the Lord, because of this, banished him, that's Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, that's out of the boundaries, out of the protection and the citizenship of the kingdom of God on earth, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's an angel, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Border Force or Australian Border Force, but I bet if they could commission a Netflix series about this Border Force, it would be far more interesting. (laughs) An angel with a flaming sword to guard the borders, border control, heavenly border control, to protect the kingdom of heaven on earth. But Adam and Eve had lost their citizenship and voluntarily taken up citizenship in the kingdom of the world. Let's pause there, jump back in our DeLorean and come back to present day. As I said, my title today is citizen. So what does being a citizen mean? Well, to be a citizen means you are a legally recognised subject or national of a state or commonwealth by birth, being native or by naturalisation. And when we think of culture and citizenship in our day and time, each and every one of you have a nation of birth. And more likely than not, your nation of birth is where you were given citizenship. And what I find really interesting in a church like ours that has 40 plus nations at the last count is you can look around and you can see the different citizenship statuses demonstrated in our church. Have you ever noticed that? When Cheryl walked in, Cheryl, our worship leader, where is she? Give us a wave, Cheryl. I said this morning, Cheryl, you look amazing. And she went, well, you know, it's my roots. And I thought, that's fantastic. Straight into my message, it's my roots. Because your citizenship isn't just a status. It helps form our very identity. You will know where you've been brought up overtly and covertly. You have been completely conformed and transformed into acceptable behaviours of your citizenship. Overtly by being taught by your parents, by your school teachers, by the laws of your government, but also covertly, you soak up, particularly when you were young, like a sponge, what is acceptable behaviour when people are around you. So if you were going for this kingdom of God, being a citizen in the kingdom of God, and we were taking it literally like Adam and Eve, it would be socially acceptable at this moment of time to walk into this building completely naked. Now, we might get a little bit of a shock, eh? because that's not culturally accepted behaviour here in the UK and in Luton. But actually, if you go to some tribes around the world, that is absolutely accepted normal behaviour. So all of us have been formed and conformed into the natural culture that we have been brought up into. And usually that is where we hold our citizenship. As I said, we've got 40 plus nations. And I'm so excited. I'll use this to plug in a few weeks, the 26th of September. Make sure you book into church because it is going to be a hoot. We're going to all be in national dress. I don't quite know what British national dress is. Top hat and tails. I'm not sure. I might have to rent out a suit. But come in your national dress. It is going to be a party. And I believe it's going to be a picture of heaven. But of course, this morning, we're talking about a different citizenship. 
We're talking about a different nation. We're not talking about the physical realm, the physical world. We're talking about these two kingdoms, the tale of two kingdoms, as we explored just a moment ago in Genesis. So let me give us our key verses for today. Here they are in Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, and then skip a chunk, but please do read this at home and then finish with verse 19. It says this. This is Paul writing to the same church he wrote to last week in Ephesians 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, that's your wrongdoings and your sins, in which you, look at this language, you used to live when you followed the ways or the customs or the culture of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air or the kingdom of the world, as we just discovered, was Satan. All of us, that's without exception, also lived among them at one time too, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by our very nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, go next slide, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, because it is by his grace, not of anything you've done, not because of any citizenship application that you were filled out, but by his grace alone, you've been saved. You've been saved. Verse 19 Consequently, that means because of this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are, here's our word, fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, I could just close my Bible and finish there. That is a sermon in itself. But let me tell you what Paul, in layman's terms, is trying to communicate there. Once you're a citizen of this world, but when you choose to accept Jesus and follow in his customs and behaviour and culture, you became citizens of heaven. Now, he said all of us, without exception, that's you, that's Ebony, Trin, Lars, Liz, Paul, maybe not Shirley Connor, I think she was born into the kingdom of heaven. But anyway, everyone else, everyone else, all of us, without exception, were born as natives into the kingdom of this world. Why? Well, it was because of the expectation Uh, expatriation if I could say that word due to the expatriation in Eden that's of Adam and Eve we are all natives of the kingdom of this world we have been formed conformed and transformed both overtly by the behaviours of our world that is deemed acceptable and covertly by our very nature to be citizens of this world Paul uses this word the flesh the flesh. And what Paul isn't talking about is if you lift your top up and look at your navel and, and your skin and your muscle and your bone. He's not talking about that. The flesh in the terminology he's using here is literally that thing, the structures, the cultures, the accepted practices and behaviours of this world. He says we can't help being natives of this world. We can't help but be gratified by that. You see, the kingdom of this world is where humanity holds its native citizenship. But I believe, church, going right back to Genesis 1, it is not our country of origin. I'll say that again. The world is where we hold our native citizenship, but it's not our country of origin. What we are, as image bearers of Christ, are immigrants, and it might be four million generations, X times generational immigrants to the kingdom of the world. You see, I believe, church, our homeland is heaven. Every one of us. Every single one of us is called to accept citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But it is our choice because we are natives to the world. We have a choice to make. But I believe each and every one of us, whether you would say you are a God person, a faith person, you believe in Jesus or you believe in any other God, 
I believe all of us have this deep, inner-seated longing right in the core of our being. A religious word for that would be our soul that has a longing for home. And no matter what you try and do and what you try and fill that longing with, and it could be people, it could be relationship, it could be money, it could be power, it could be sex, it could be things, it could be toys, it could be Playstations, it could be retro T-shirts, Lars, it could be films, it could be all these different things. We just try and fill this inner longing for. I believe, church, until we find Jesus, we'll never find it. Honestly believe that. And I know if you're in this church this morning or watching online and thinking, well, goodness me, this religious guy is a bit balmy. What does he mean? Well, I believe even if you don't follow Jesus, you will know what I'm talking about here. That inner urge, that longing, that drive for purpose that I think is deep seated within all of us. Why are we here? We ask ourselves these deep philosophical questions. Is life really just something that was a happy accident millions of years ago and we just pass through and then die and that's it? I can't subscribe to that. I actually believe that takes more faith than believing in a creator God. There's this inner drive, this longing. And I put it like this. Every year, growing up, sort of 11, 12, 13, 14, my mum and dad would take us to Spain as a family. I'm one of four boys. I'm the eldest, the shortest, and the fattest, and probably the ugliest nowadays of the four boys, but I'm the eldest, so I've got that going for me, okay? And every year we go away to Spain, usually Ibiza, and not like San Antonio, the clubbing strip. My mum and dad weren't that bad parents, okay? They used to take us to Ibiza and this resort. And we'd go, go without foul every year for two weeks, all inclusive. And what I found really interesting is we would have an amazing time, but by day eight, by day nine, by day 10, we would want to come home. Although it was great and it was fun and then we got to do all these amazing things, water slides and walk at parks and eat whatever we want, chips for breakfast, lunch and dinner. We get to this point where we just wanted to go home. And I listened to my mum every year, come back, and her friends would ask, how was the holiday? And she'd say, it was good, but we should have gone for 10 days. <laughs> have you ever said that? Not two weeks, 10 days, but year on year, she'd booked for two weeks and two weeks and two weeks and never 10 days. But I believe it's a little bit like that. You see, the world can be fun. The world can have all sorts of things in it, but there's that inner longing that it can just not quench. Why, church? Because we are of a mixed heritage. I'm going to call a glamorous assistant to the stage. You may or may not know him. Uh, but Ian Lewis, will you come and join me? Should give him a round of applause like it's blind apes. Do you remember that? Fantastic. All right, Ian, will you take your mask off for me? Thank you. Okay, so Ian Lewis. You can't get a much more British name than Ian Lewis. You look at Ian and you think, okay, he's the epitome of Britain. Okay, British name, lives in Britain. Say Hello. Hello. Very British accent, okay. He's from the posh side of Luton, so he's got that, that British accent. You're actually from Malden, aren't you? So even posher, okay. So Ian is British. You will look at Ian and probably not bat an eyelid, but if you look a little bit deeper, they actually are you British. A little bit deeper. You've got a middle name, Ian. What's your middle name? Asga. As, as, Asga? That doesn't sound very British. Where's, where's that name from? It's from Denmark. Denmark. Okay, so if we dig a little bit deeper, Ian, where's your dad from? Well, you're getting into a whole different ball game there. <laughs> my, my dad was actually born in Baghdad, although he's of Indian heritage. And just to say, my middle name is Asger, and that's because I was born on the same day as my Danish granddad. So not so British. Okay, where's your mum from? My mum is Danish, so I'm more Danish than anything else, although you probably couldn't tell by looking at me. And born in the L&D? No, I was born in Denmark in a place called Hanas. 
I'm not going to try and repeat that. Okay. Right, should we give you a round of applause? Go and sit down here. You see, just like that, silly illustration, church, but that is a story of our soul. All sorts of places there with Ian, British name, British accent, looks fairly British, but there's a whole different story if you dig a little bit deeper. You see, with us, we have that exact same mixed heritage, not so much Danish and Baghdad and Indian, because in the spiritual, there are only two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the world. And we have a pull, I believe, because our native citizenship is in the world and our home, our country of origin, however many generations removed, is heaven. And you see, what we explored last week in Jesus doing this master plan, the mysterious plan, Ephesians 1 calls it, of dying for us, shedding his blood. The Ephesians uh, church, the letter to the church in Ephesus to the Ephesians in 1 verse 7 said, he literally purchased us, that's Jesus, with his blood. He purchased our family name. He purchased our right to inheritance and legacy. And he purchased our right to citizenship status. You see, because of this, because of this pathway that Jesus has opened for us, we all, every single one of us, have a choice. And if we so choose, we have the right to what the government would call automatic acquisition. Now, the government make everything sound complicated. Let me explain it. Automatic acquisition is the acquisition of citizenship that refers to the mechanism by which a foreign-born child, that be you and I, born as citizens of the world, acquire citizenship automatically by virtue of being born, look at this, or adopted to parents who were citizens of another nation. So what did Jesus do to us? He gave us an offer of adoption. There's that imprint within us, that longing for home, and Jesus made a way where we could fulfil it. Now, if any of you are savvy, and maybe some of you do have citizenship in different countries and different places, but maybe you also have citizenship here too. You're thinking, well, quid's in. I can have dual citizenship. And what's really interesting with Ian, as I started to talk to Ian this week, I was trying to tease out the metaphor and the illustration. I said, Ian, do you hold a dual citizenship? Do you hold citizenship to Britain and to Denmark? And he said, no. He said, I had a choice to make. 18 years old, when I came to maturity and grew up, I had to choose to be either from Denmark, bearing in mind families there, born there, or from Britain, here, Malden, Luton, 18, and I chose Britain. That changed in 2015. I did a little Google search. If Ian so wanted now, he could apply and hold passports to two countries. What that means is you can skip airport queues in both Luton and in Denmark. Quids in. You see, it doesn't work though in the spiritual. We can't keep having these two identities. Look at this from Jesus in Matthew 12. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, we preach a lot about Jesus, meek and mild and loving and gentle, which he absolutely is. But Jesus also said some really hard things as well. What he's saying here is, guys, you have a choice to make. Why can't we hold dual citizenship to the world and to the kingdom of heaven? Because essentially we are at war, the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. They are so diametrically opposed in their cultures and their DNA. Their their structures, their ways of doing things are absolutely opposite. Look at this, a quick list I wrote up just a few days ago. I call it the DNA of the kingdoms, which means the distinct natural attributes So the world, the kingdoms, the structures, the cultures, the way we do things are perishing. It's chasing after momentary pleasures. It's about being competitive, striving for being the best. We celebrate independence and it's selfish. It's about how much we can accumulate. 
And of course, Satan or the devil being the prime minister of this kingdom, his native language is lies and mistruth and misapplication. Let's jump over to the heavenly kingdom. What are the structures, DNA and cultures of the heavenly kingdom? Completely opposite. It's not perishing, it's eternal. It deals in unconditional love, not momentary pleasures. It's submissive, not competitive. It's abiding, not striving. It's interdependent and not independent. It's selfless, not selfish. And its language is truth. Can you see why it gets hard, church, when we try and have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven? They are moving in opposite directions. And I think all of us, to some extent, even if you've been a believer or a Christian for 50 years, we still feel this tug because these two natures, these two citizenship identities are at war within us. Now, reading that on a big screen, it's really, really obvious, isn't it? If I gave you the choice now, which kingdom do you want to belong to? Well, heaven, you'd hope so, being in church. Heaven. But it's not as easy as that, is it? Because actually, although it's really easy when we're all worshipping together and we were sat next to a holier person than us and we say, yeah, I'm all for the kingdom of heaven. I'm two feet in, not one foot out and one foot in like the hokey cokey. Why do we keep struggling? Truth is, church, is we like it. We like the world. We like to sin. And you can say that in church because you have to talk the truth. You see, we know sin is evil, we know sin is destructive, we know it's a perishing force, but actually, we really, really like it. If sin wasn't good or felt good or tastes good or feel good, we wouldn't do it. So we said last week, 2 Corinthians 11, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He likes to give us things that we desire. You see, the worldly kingdom is so attractive to that inner base part, that primal urge of the flesh. It gratifies and it feeds that fallen side of us, that that heritage, that worldly heritage within us. But actually, church, I want to tell you, the phrase I came up with just thinking about this, is that the kingdom of the world, although it feels good momentarily, it is a cardboard kingdom. By that, I mean it's like Disneyland. And we all love Disneyland, don't we? I had an amazing trip there a couple of years ago with my in-laws. Probably it would have been more amazing if they didn't come. But anyway, my in-laws came and my kids. And it was just absolutely fantastic. And we were there for the week and we were doing all the rides and there was Mickey Mouse and there was Peter Pan and there was all the shows and there was the amazing castle and the light show. But what was really interesting, if you get inside the castle and if you go up to the the cool, you know, sweet looking cottages that look like they're made with candy floss and diamond, you know, midget gems, you get close, it's all plastic and cardboard. It's a facade. It's all propped up on stilts. You get in this amazing kingdom castle and you want to see four poster beds and banquet tables. What you see is dodgy nails and staples that's been rushed together and thrown up. That is the kingdom of the world. It looks good. It tempts you in. It invites you in. And when you're in so deep, it actually, you spend some time there, you realise it's not all good for you. It gives you momentary pleasure. And we see this every day in our text. Maybe you've been married 20 years and then suddenly there's a very good looking man or lady at work and they start texting you about how great you are and how nice you look today and you think oh there's something within you well my wife doesn't say that my husband doesn't say that maybe you're flicking through your internet history and a a little ad pops up for gambling or a dodgy site that doesn't look pg-13 and you get a little twinge and a little thought do i click it do i not momentary pleasure momentary pleasure always leads to destruction and i use that word really really plainly destruction you see Moments of pleasure, living in the moment requires, I'll say this slowly because it's a little phrase I love, living for the moment always requires moments of atonement. Say that again. 
living for the moment, for that gratifying inner desire, that urge, that primal thing within us, always requires moments of atonement, having to think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've done that. And we all do it every single day, even the pastors, even the elders. I see one of our elders sitting here. We all have moments of weakness where we have to think, oh my goodness, I need to just get it together, get it straight. And let me tell you, church, that never goes away. If you've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it might change the thing that is trying to pull you and tempt you away from the kingdom of heaven, where before it might be boys and girls, maybe now it's money or power. It baits us, it tricks us, it, it knows exactly what it is that will pull us away out of the kingdom of heaven because Satan wants you to live in the kingdom of the world. And he will tell you, you can have dual citizenship. You can do this and you can do that. He can tell you, you don't have to settle for one or the other. You can have it all. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. We talked about it last week, Ephesians 1. Paul says that the Holy Spirit comes as our guarantee of our inheritance, of our adoption. But I also love this. The Holy Spirit isn't just our guarantee. He's our teacher. Look at this, right into, um, Paul writing to one of his prodigies, Titus. He says, for the grace of God that appeared that offers salvation to all. Again, that's all of us have that opportunity. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. You see, when we make the choice to jump out of the kingdom of the world and jump into the kingdom of heaven, we need to have a tutor and a mentor to be able to do it. If tomorrow I wanted to try and claim citizenship to America, I would have to go through all sorts of expensive protocols, exams, uh, customs, history lessons. And essentially, this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. And here's what's really important to, I think, keep in our minds. We absolutely know that the grace of God that offers salvation to all people is free. We cannot earn it. Paul stresses this time and time again. We can't earn it. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost anything. It cost a lot. We just didn't have to pay it. Jesus paid it with what? His blood and that sacrifice. And although we can't earn our salvation, it also doesn't mean it doesn't require effort. It is free. Anyone can have it. But if you want to be a good citizen in the kingdom of heaven, it requires time and it requires effort. And it requires teaching ourselves to say no to ungodly things that gratify something within us in a moment, but actually don't lead to wholeness or fullness or life as Jesus would have it in our lives and in our world. So we need to go through this process of constant acclimatisation constantly rewiring ourselves and re-catching ourselves and stopping ourselves thinking actually if I want to live as Jesus said in the kingdom of heaven now and not just hold on and cower in the corner until I die and eventually get to heaven if I want to make the most of what Jesus is calling me now purposes and plans and life to its fullest I need constant acclimatisation which means the process of becoming accustomed to a new climate or new conditions namely a brand new culture And when we think about this, we see the blueprint of how to do this. Paul, again, talking to the church in Rome, he says in Romans 12 2, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Or we could say it, do not conform to the accepted behaviours, cultures, customs of the citizenship of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how on earth do we do that? And we looked last week, didn't we, say to the master identity thief, wants us to take our old passport to the jewellers to pick up the thing that has been paid for. And if we take the wrong ID and the wrong passport and the wrong driving licence, we'll never be able to claim what is fully ours. 
So we looked at what happens when you don't do that, but it's one thing of knowing what not to do and another thing knowing how to do it. I know if I wanted to get to the moon, I'd have to take a rocket there, but I've never done it. I've got no knowledge of all how to do it. So I want to teach you today, last week we looked at what, and this week I want to look at how by the renewing, the transforming of our minds. Now, as I said, some of us in this church, we've come from different cultures, different places, and maybe you've got expatriated here and you've taken up citizenship or dual citizenship in the UK. Now, the rubber stamp on your citizenship, the final thing that tells you you are a resident of this country, the United Kingdom, or indeed the kingdom of heaven, is our passport. And I gave you a sneak peek on my passport last week. You see, our passport is the key thing that shows us where we are a citizen to. It's a a rubber stamped physical evidence of where we belong. If I want to pass ports, and I realised this week why it's called a passport, because you pass ports with it, you need to have the right passport. And what I've done a few times is when I've been getting ready to go abroad, and I remember doing this just before um, I got married and we're looking to, you know, get our honeymoon sorted. We booked our honeymoon and we were rifling through and our passport's always in a back drawer somewhere. I found our passport and realised, goodness me, we've got two weeks to go and my passport's out of date. Who's ever done that? Okay, a few of us. Okay, we'll stick together. Goodness me, it's a rush. Got to get to Peterborough quick, get an emergency appointment quick. What we need to do with our old passport is this. We need to cut it up. We need to evidence that it is no longer valid. We need to throw it away. But if you're anything like me, you're a bit of a hoarder and you keep everything, it's really, really easy to mess things up. You see, what we need to do when we come into the kingdom of heaven is make sure that we are constantly checking the validity of our passport, that it looks like us, that it says what it needs to say, and of course, that it is in date. So when we become a citizen of heaven and we make that choice to accept that offer of adoption, we are not posted a little leather passport in the post. That would be easy and cool because we could constantly keep it in our pocket, but that doesn't happen. You see, what our passport is in the kingdom is exactly who God says we are. Our passport in the natural, it shows us how far away our eyes are from each other, the structure of our nose, our hairstyle at the time of the picture. You see, what the passport in the kingdom of God is, it's about who God says you are, not who you say you are. See, God says in his word that he knew us even before we were formed in the womb. He knows when we get up and when we lie down. He knows what we think and even before we think it. He knows what we speak even before we speak it. He knows absolutely everything about us. So how do we validify our identity? And I want to tell you, church, even if you've been, as I say, a Christian 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 90 years, 100 years, it doesn't matter. You still need to validify your passport because there is always that tug to the earth to the world, to those desires, to those primal things. We need to be constantly checking and making sure our kingdom passport is up to date and is who God says we are. Last week we talked about what, now we're going to talk about how. We need to think the words of God, speak the words of God and live the word of God. I wonder if Mark, you could come up and help me, make me sound holy. Thank you, mate. I was doing a little bit of research about two years ago about psychology and the psychology of the brain. I I always think, you know, theology is really important, preaching is really important, of course it is. But a lot of the systems and structures and things we're discovering scientifically in the world are obviously God-ordained as creator. He created us. He created the intricacies and knowledge and wisdom and information. And as I was doing this, I came across a life coach. I can't remember his name now, but it's a common practice trying to Google him, but everyone seems to be doing it. 
And this life coach in particular I was looking at this week, he was talking about those who struggle with anxiety and those who are underconfident in themselves and in their identity. Maybe they've got to do public speaking, they've never done it before. How do we do it? And you will find yourself doing this naturally, not even having to be coached doing it. When you've got an exam, a driving lesson, a driving exam, you're, you're going for a promotion, a job interview, and you're wanting to go in that next step in your career, you will find yourself speaking to yourself as you walk into the room. You'll be saying things like, you've got this, you can do this, you've prepped for this, you know this, you know gear one to two to three, you know how it's going to go, you can do this, you've got this, you're confident. Have you ever done that? had a little bit of self-talk, it's a little bit like a coach in a changing room, you're speaking to yourself in your mind. And what this life coach was saying is literally, if you were going for a job interview and if you know you have prepped enough, I want you to spend 10 minutes in the morning, in the mirror, telling yourself that you've got this. That's something weird, doesn't it? As you're brushing your teeth, looking at yourself deep in the eyes, he said, and say, you've got this, you know this, you're confident, you can do this. Don't believe the lies that you can't do this. And it sounds really weird, but actually I think there's something in this. I think, what would it look like if some of us were really struggling with those primal passions, those desires that pull us out of the kingdom of God, can take 10 minutes in the morning and look in our bathroom mirror and say who God says you are. I'm chosen. I'm redeemed. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a royal priesthood. I'm an heir. I have an inheritance. Are you anxious? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? In Philippians 4 verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. By everything, give it to prayer and petition. Romans 2, um, 8, 28, you're more than a conqueror. All these verses, just speak them. And it's one thing to think them, but I think something happens when we verbalise something. As I said right at the beginning of this sermon, God created, didn't He? He breathed and galaxies came into play. He spoke and mountains were formed. And as I said, we have something of the fingerprint of God in our DNA. And I believe we can't speak and see planets form, but I believe when we speak, things happen. And it's not something I'll just think, scientifically proven how we think and how we speak can literally rewire neural pathways in our brain. Wow, we have the ability to speak truth and see neural pathways of lies reroute and reroute in our lives. This is what we need to be doing, church. About six years ago, I was at a conference, a young adults conference in Bradford. And there was a speaker there called Chad Veach. And he's a pastor in America. He leads a church in, um, I think it's in Hollywood, a pretty cool place to have a church, called Zoe Church. And Chad Veach, he got up without any notes and he just began to speak from his heart and preach. And what I noticed about Chad Veach is every other paragraph, he was just dropping scripture, like bombs. No Bible, just scripture, scripture, scripture. And I was a pastor at this time. I've been a pastor about three years. And I was just so awed by his ability to speak scripture. And I don't think he came from a place of like arrogance or anything like that. But I remember listening to him and watching him thinking, I wonder what that must do to his spirit, just inhabiting the word of God in his life. He doesn't just read it for 10 minutes in the morning and, and you know, do it because he has to do. He must have sat there and let it soak in his spirit. Let it just sit deep within him to form and change something. And from that moment on, I got convicted to try and learn memory verses. And it's something I hadn't done since I was about six years old in Sunday school. But I want to tell you, church, memory verses shouldn't just be for Sunday school. They're a key thing to validify your identity in Christ. Absolutely key. Homework this week. I know some of you haven't had homework for many years. Learn a memory verse for who God says you are. And when you have a moment this week and you feel tugged or pulled and you just feel your citizenship status being attacked because it will be, 
Bring that verse to mind. Speak it, rewire something, shift something, change something, affirm and validify your kingdom passport in the heavenlies. There's a famous quote that I just wanted to throw in at the end here. I've tweaked it slightly, but you, you may have heard it before. It says this, How you think will become what you speak and what you speak will become your actions. Your continued actions will become your habits and your habits form your character. And of course, your character shapes your identity and even your destiny. So why don't we speak his thoughts this week? Some of us have been given citizenship in the kingdom of God. We've accepted adoption. We've taken it up. We've changed our passport, but we still live into the customs and cultures of the world that tell us we're not good enough, that tell us we need to strive, that tell us we need to earn, that keep us hemmed in and boxed up and out of the purposes and plans of God for our lives. I want to tell you, church, today, you are released. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live boxed up in a worldly kingdom when the kingdom of heaven is waiting. It's what Jesus did on the cross. He opened the floodgates of the borders and said, if you so wish, you can be acquisitioned here. You can change your status. I wonder if you stand with me, church. Now, I don't think for a minute that every person in here would call themselves a Christian or a Jesus believer. And that is absolutely fine. We love you. You are always welcome here, no matter what. But I just felt really, really convicted this week that the message I should bring today about our identity in Christ isn't just for Christians who have always done this church thing, but maybe for you, maybe only you in this room or watching online who have never accepted Jesus' invitation to be adopted as a son and a daughter and therefore an heir and a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I want to give you that opportunity. How do we do this? Do we need to sit an entrance exam? No. Do we need to pay a, a big cost? No, we've, we've sorted that out. We know Jesus did that. One verse in the Bible I always cling to says this, Romans 10 verse 9. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus rose and died again and forgave your sins, you are a son or daughter of God. Paraphrased. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is basically. You're, a king, you're in the kingdom of heaven, son and daughter of God. As I said, you don't have to earn it, but it will require effort. You make that decision today to come into the kingdom of God. You will face trials this week. You will face temptations this week because Satan wants you back in his kingdom. To Satan, it's like a Luton Town fan becoming a Watford fan. It's a big deal. But let me tell you, your life and your purpose were ordained in his book long before you were born. Long before you took your first breath, he knew you, he formed you, he loved you and he called you. So if that's you, I would love to hear about that today. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. And if this is you, maybe your heart's beating a little faster and you don't know why. Maybe something is happening within you now and you don't know why. You're sweating or you're tingling or there's a little sensation in your fingers. You don't know why. I believe that's the Holy Spirit telling you to come home. That inner longing that is there in all of us is putting you home. He's saying, declare you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. All you need to do is pray this prayer with me and we'll go on a journey and discover what citizenship means together. But I wonder, church, for those of us who are in the kingdom of heaven and we'll call ourselves sons and daughters of God, will you pray this prayer with me too? We confess it together afresh, validify our identity, repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that I am who you say I am. I understand that I was born into this world but recognise the call to home that you have instilled within us. I believe you are who you say you are. 
and I want to accept your offer of adoption. Help me, Lord Jesus. Call me to your purposes, Lord Jesus. And let me know I am who you say I am. Amen. Amen. There's power in the declared word. If you declared that and you meant it in your heart, I believe something has shifted and changed. We wonder, don't we, when we're in worship, why sometimes we get emotional? Why does that those goosebumps why the atmosphere feels different because we're doing exactly what we talked about we're declaring truth we're declaring over ourselves and when we do that corporately isn't it special oftentimes I find myself in these moments of worship and I've got tears in the back of my eyes I'm pretending I've got hay fever or you know I've got an itch and just trying to swat them away there's nothing to be ashamed of in declaring truth it is shaping and forming something within you we're going to do, sing this song now it's a break every chain and as we think about the citizenship of the world, going into the citizenship of heaven. Let this be our anthem and our declaration. And then I'm going to come back and close at the end. Thank you so much, church. Thank you, team.